1: Relax. Breathe. Let the world fall away. It's time to get sassy with your mind. This week, we're going to learn about the unknown benefits of mindfulness. We'll find out how taking the time to explore your thoughts can lead to better brain function and why you're better off moving rather than sitting still. And in our SAS class, we're gonna hear how a single session of mindfulness can help your heart. I'm Jason, the Germ Guy Tetro, and I'm gonna guide you through a relaxing session of science that will change the way you think. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. What happens when opposites come together? Usually, it's not pretty, but in some cases, it can result in something awesome. Eastern traditional medicine and Western science are often at odds, but there's one subject that has transcended the differences and brought the two practices together, mindfulness. The definition of mindfulness varies depending on who you ask, but there is a common goal. You try to control your thoughts. It sounds simple, right? Truth is, it's probably the hardest thing you can do. After all, our minds are racing with a variety of different stimuli and we tend to react to them almost instinctively. For most of us, we'd be better off herding cats than trying to control how we think. But for psychologists, it has offered an opportunity to help patients find their own path to wellness. After all, if a person can identify their own troubles, they're more likely to improve their health. Over the years, as interest in mindfulness has grown, so has research into whether it actually works or if it's just another case of pseudoscience, intensified. The conclusion is clear, mindfulness is for real. More importantly, it has benefits that extend beyond what one might originally expect. Our first guest has been exploring the benefits of mindfulness on our brains and also how our brains work in our daily lives. It's called executive function. If you're not familiar with the term, don't fret. She's going to tell us all about it. Her name is Adele Diamond, and she is a Tier 1 Canada Research Chair in Developmental Cognitive Neuroscience at the University of British Columbia. She's also been listed as one of the 15 most influential neuroscientists alive today. What is executive function?
0: Executive function actually refers to a family of abilities that are needed when you need Whenever you have to concentrate or pay attention, when going on automatic or relying on instinct or intuition would be ill-advised or not even possible, and there are three core executive functions. One of them is inhibitory control. That involves things like giving a considered response rather than an impulsive one, resisting temptation, resisting distraction, and staying focused. So that includes things like self-control, discipline, and selective attention. It's needed, for example, in order not to reflexively strike back when somebody hurts your feelings, blurt out an inappropriate remark, cut in line, quickly jump to a conclusion, or, for example, when I visit London so that I don't look left when I want to cross the street and instead look right. It's needed in order to not make social faux pas hurt other people's feelings, do something you'd regret, things like that. The second core executive function is working memory. And that involves holding information in mind and mentally working with it, mentally playing with and relating ideas and facts. So, for example, translating instructions into action plans, considering alternatives, mentally calculating a route, updating your thinking or planning, mentally reordering a to-do list, pondering the future, reflecting on the past. So, clearly, it's important for reasoning and problem solving. And the third of the three core executive functions is cognitive flexibility. That includes thinking outside the box, looking at something from a different perspective, changing how you think about something, flexibly adjusting to change, whether that change is a sudden opportunity, serendipity, or a sudden unexpected problem or obstacle. So like the ability to see... Different perspectives on a situation. Maybe there's somebody who you have completely different views on politics about, but from a different perspective, maybe you share tastes in music or share tastes in social justice. If there's a problem you haven't been able to solve, might you be able to think of the problem, frame the problem in a whole new way, come up with a different way of attacking it? That's cognitive flexibility. From those core executive functions, higher-order executive functions like reasoning, problem-solving, and planning are built. Now, executive functions are effortful. It's easier, obviously, to continue doing what you've been doing than to change or to put thought into what to do next. It's easier to give in to temptation than to resist it. And all of these executive functions depend critically on a part of the brain called prefrontal cortex and the other neural regions with with which it's connected.
1: It really sounds like executive function is dominating us during our daily life. Do the different stimuli that we see affect how our executive function is going to happen?
0: Well, they put different demands on executive function. So for some things, for many things, you can just go on automatic. You don't have to think about it. You don't need executive function. It's only when There's a change when the unexpected happens, when you have to resist your first inclination that you need it. Maybe when you're on social media, for example, and all these stupid ads pop up, you need executive function selective attention so that you don't focus on those. But if you were on some screen where the ads didn't pop up, then you wouldn't need executive function because there would be nothing that you'd have to inhibit attending to. So it depends very much on the situation that you're in how much distraction there is, how much temptation there is to do something that you'd regret. It depends very much on the situation, how much you need executive function.
1: And what about stress?
0: Well, stress impairs executive function. There's kind of a a bidirectional relationship between prefrontal cortex and stress. Stress impairs the functioning of prefrontal cortex, but prefrontal cortex can help you cope with stress. It's very clear that when you're stressed, you have worse executive function.
1: The reason I ask that is because mindfulness is usually thought to be used for combating stress. But it sounds like mindfulness will be able to help not just our prefrontal cortex, but also executive function overall.
0: You would think that. I mean, that's perfect logic. Stress impairs executive function. Mindfulness helps reduce stress. Mindfulness should improve executive function. That makes perfect sense. Unfortunately, a lot of the studies... Of meditation sitting mindfulness don't find much improvement in executive functions. But studies of mindfulness practices that involve movement like Tai Chi or Taekwondo do find remarkable benefits to executive function. We recently did a review of all the different types of ways people have tried to improve executive function and of all the different ways, cognitive training, aerobics or resistance training, neurofeedback, all of them, the one that shows the best results for improving executive function are mindfulness practices that involve movement, much more than mindfulness practices that are more sedentary and much more than other movement activities like aerobic or resistance training that don't involve mindfulness. Now, having said that, there aren't a lot of studies that look at the benefits of mindfulness practices that involve movement and executive function. So it might be when there are more studies, the initial findings won't hold up. But right now, the initial findings look better than any other way anybody has tried to improve executive function.
1: That seems to go completely against everything we've ever heard. When we're talking about mindfulness and meditation does fall into that, we're thinking about being sedentary, as you said, or we're getting ourselves into the burn, to the exercise, to try and, you know, wipe out all of the things that we're feeling, the stresses, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Why would the small movements or, or the gentle movements possibly be better at executive function?
0: We don't know why mindfulness um, activities that involve movement seem to benefit executive function so much. We don't know. I'll offer two possibilities, but they're just possibilities. We don't know if they're right. One is that not only does stress impair executive function, but loneliness does. And conversely, we have better executive function usually when we're happier and when we feel socially supported. And activities like taekwondo and tai chi are typically done together with others in a social group. So it might be because of the social aspect that they have more benefit than the sedentary mindfulness. I don't know. It's just a possibility. Another possibility, there are two ways, kind of, to be in one of the problems of stress for executive function, one of the problems, is that it distracts you. You're concentrating on what you're anxious about, what you're worried about, what you're afraid of, and you're not able to fully focus on what you should be focusing on. There two kind of mind states where you are more likely to be in the present moment, fully in the present moment. One is if you're calm and centered, like any mindfulness activity. It helps you be calm and centered and stay in the present moment. Another way to stay fully in the present moment is to be energized, to be doing something that you love so much. You are 100%, 1000% in that activity. Again, you're focused. So there are kind of two ways to get from the distracted state of stress to being more focused, I think. One is being the calm way where you're centered and serene, and the other is where you're joyfully enthused, you're passionately involved. And if you really enjoy the Tai Chi and Taekwondo, perhaps it combines elements of both of those. You're not only trying to be calm and stay in the present moment, but you're doing something that you really love doing. Now, those are just hypotheses. I don't know. Maybe it has something to do with the combination of mind-body, that the aerobic exercise and resistance training aren't emphasizing the mental benefits of uh, mindfulness, and the sitting or more sedentary mindfulness practices aren't bringing the body in so much. These are just hypotheses. I don't know why why that seems to be the case.
1: There are many ways to practice mindfulness other than what we normally associate with, sitting still in one spot. As you have heard, movement is important when it comes to executive function. We have yoga, tai chi, and qigong. But what about Lego? How about basketball? Is doing what you love just as important as having movement? Adele Diamond's research has looked into this question. She has found some results that are far more than surprising. They're awesome. When we look at executive function, where we have children and we want them to improve over the course of their lives, do you think that incorporation of these techniques may be able to help them learning so that they're better when they become adults. Yes. First
0: of all, if you improve executive function, you should improve learning and school outcomes. There's lots of evidence of that. That's not just a hypothesis. There's a lot of evidence to support that. Secondly, you do better if you really love what you're doing, if it's not onerous, if it's something that you look forward to doing, if you're loving it. And if you can get in the state where you're really enthused about what you're doing, if you're really happy to be in school because you're enjoying what's happening, then you should presumably want to be invested in school more and work harder. The U.S. Math Olympiad team hadn't won the International Math Olympiad in, I don't know, 20 years. It didn't even come close. They got a professor from Carnegie Mellon University to head the team, and he told them before they picked him. That if you pick me, they're not. the team is not going to win because I'm not going to emphasize winning. I'm going to emphasize enjoying doing the math. And what happened? They won that year and they won the next year because they weren't focused on winning. They weren't focused on the competition. They weren't getting stressed over, my God, I have to get this point right. They were just doing it for the love of doing it.
1: I want to go to the other end of the spectrum then. We hear about the idea of mindfulness being able to help people who are elderly, and it may even be able to stall some of the problems that we see, including dementia. Do you think having that mindfulness approach with a little bit of movement or being part of a social group could possibly be helping to maintain that executive function longer into life?
0: Yes, absolutely. I think, first of all, use it or lose it. So if you're exercising selective attention, if you're trying to stay focused in mindfulness, then you're using executive function, so it's going to get better. If you can stay calm and not be so stressed, it's going to support executive functions being better. And there's also evidence that moving, including uh, physical activity, helps executive function stay longer into old age and helps the brain stay healthy longer into total old age. It's kind of a contradiction that people who are more physically active and have better aerobic fitness have better executive functions, but aerobic exercise interventions and resistance training interventions have shown little benefit to executive function. So in the real world, the people who are more physically fit and have better aerobic fitness tend to have better executive functions. So it could be, you know, that maybe you need better executive functions in order to maintain a physical fitness regimen. Or maybe people who are more physically fit get better sleep and eat better. But let's say that there's some real benefit that aerobic exercise and physical fitness is giving you that the the interventions are not picking up, which I think is the case. I think rather than varying things like dose and duration, which people are doing, I think they should realize that we've been barking up the wrong tree, that a lot of the aerobic exercise and resistance training interventions are boring. They have you do decontextualized skills like practicing dribbling a basketball, but you never get to play basketball. You're in the gym doing exercises for the stupid study. And I think that People are gonna get more of an activity if they're invested in it, if it's personally meaningful, if they feel like there's some reason to do it, not just because they agreed to be in a study. And I think that you get invested in real activities, like playing basketball, rather than practicing something from basketball, but not actually doing it. In fact, there's a study out of Japan where they had kids learn tennis in two different ways. One is the traditional way, like I learned tennis. First, you practice the skills out of context. First, you practice your forehand. And then when you get relatively good at it, you start practicing your backhand, etc. And eventually, maybe you get to play tennis. The other group got to play tennis from the beginning. They learned to play tennis by playing a simplified age-appropriate version of tennis from the beginning. And they not only improve faster in tennis, but they improve more in executive functions. The El Sistema music program does the same sort of thing. Instead of having you practice on your instrument alone until you get good enough to play with others, they have you play with others from the beginning. And it looks like they have more benefits to executive function. There's a study out of Philadelphia that shows that.
1: This idea of mindfulness with movement and doing what you love seems to be a much better approach Is the mindfulness that we're hearing about constantly out in social media and in the news reports, is it really just a fad? Is mindfulness just another buzzword and eventually we're going to find out what really works?
0: No, I don't think it's a fad. I think it is very valuable in reducing stress. It is very valuable in helping you stay in the present moment very valuable in helping you be non-judgmental, learning not to keep criticizing yourself when your mind wanders. I think it's very beneficial for those. I think it may not be so beneficial for executive functions. I think in order to improve executive functions, it's possible that you need to do the forms of mindfulness that involve more movement. But they're as ancient as the more sedentary forms. And I see them popping up all over the place, just like I see more sedentary. So I see yoga, I see qigong, I see tai chi, I see taekwondo all over the place as well. So I think there's an interest in mindfulness because we're a very stressed society and we'd like to be less stressed. We'd like to be able to stay focused. So I think there's real value in it. I think a lot of times people miss The true essence of it, which is a fairly spiritual practice, and start to do it more as a rote thing, as a physical activity only, and I think then you miss the point. It's meant really to be a a spiritual practice. People want to get away from religion because they're afraid that people think we're trying to bring Buddhism, you know, convert people to Buddhism. But that's not at all the case. You can do it as a Christian. You can do it as a Jew. You can do it as a Hindu. It doesn't matter. But I think it should be done not just as something that's
1: superficial, but as something that's deeply spiritual. What would you suggest as a means to start?
0: I would suggest a mindfulness activity that involves movement. So I would suggest Qigong, Tai Chi, or Taekwondo, something like that. I would also suggest that they do anything that they love that involves executive function. And it can be anything in the world. It can be drumming, it can be rock climbing. Almost anything can be done. So it requires that you stay focused on it. So it requires that you integrate what you've learned before with what you're doing now using working memory. It can be done so that you have to problem solve in the moment when something unexpected happens. Those all involve executive function. And if you love it, if you're committed to it, then you're going to take more time at it, you're going to spend more time at it, you're going to push yourself to get better at it, and it's going to help. So anything that a listener enjoys doing that taxes executive function, that is done in a way that it taxes executive function, is a great thing to do to improve executive function.
1: It's SAS Class time, and today we're going to look at how mindfulness can improve not just your head, but also your heart. Our guest teacher explored the benefits of just one session of mindfulness on the cardiovascular system. His name is John DeRocher, and he is an associate professor at Michigan Tech. What is the link between anxiety and cardiovascular health? Typically,
2: there is a positive association between anxiety and incidence of hypertension, cardiovascular disease. I would say that's somewhat of a individualized response as you probably recognize. There's people that may have anxiety and it it results in cardiovascular complications, but then there's others that may not get that particular set of symptoms. They might have other issues with their gastrointestinal system or some other system as a result of their anxiety.
1: And just to be clear, we're talking about anxiety here, which is different than regular stress, like having a workout or something along those lines.
2: Anxiety, we usually quantify, I can tell you, in two different ways. One is the state anxiety, kind of how you're feeling at a given moment. And the other is trait anxiety, kind of how prone you are to stressors triggering an increase in anxiety.
1: And that's really why you were looking at mindfulness, to be able to improve Heart health.
2: Exactly. So there's actually some interesting work. I believe it's from Georgetown, Dr. Elizabeth Hoagie, where she looks at basically eight-week mindfulness-based stress reduction programs and how it might reduce anxiety. So that really got me interested in this in this area. And she studies something called de- uh, decentering, which is kind of your ability to dissociate from your emotional responses, the so kind of a way to minimize stressors. She has studied this at least through one of her papers. I think it was back in 2011. Where basically the reduction in anxiety during the eight-week mindfulness-based stress reduction was related directly related to the ability to decenter or disconnect from emotions. So obviously an eight-week course, uh, you know, has the ability to reduce anxiety. We knew that, and then the objective was basically how little or how acute of a program could still have the same beneficial effects.
1: And by acute, you mean one session.
2: Exactly. Yeah. We found some evidence of people that had done a few meditation sessions per week for two weeks, and that reduced anxiety, but we didn't find anything shorter than that. The idea was, well, what happens if we bring somebody in that never went through a meditation session, we have them do it for one hour, can it reduce their anxiety? And so that's kind of the question we tried to answer.
1: Which, quite honestly, is a little American because we've got fast food, we've got fast internet, why not have fast (laughs) mindfulness at the same time, right?
2: I guess so, yeah. I guess I didn't think about it that way before, but I guess you're right, yeah.
1: What were the results that you found as a result of that one single session of mindfulness?
2: Yeah, so basically we we assessed anxiety in this particular study with the Beck Anxiety Inventory. So it's a 21-item survey, and we took people that had at least some moderate anxiety to start with. We gave them the anxiety questionnaire, and did some baseline cardiovascular assessments during an orientation or familiarization session during one week, and then we brought the participants back one week later. We did uh, some pre-baseline testing once again to make sure their cardiovascular variables were similar to the familiarization session. Then we ran them through one hour of guided meditation. Again, the student that designed the study, Ana Marti, she was the one that did the guided meditation for one hour with the participants. And then we reassessed the cardiovascular variables immediately after the meditation and then 60 minutes after the meditation, which is when we also reassessed the Beck anxiety inventory was 60 minutes after the the acute meditation. We did have one third session that just one week later, they also came in to the lab and they completed the Beck anxiety inventory one more time, one week after the meditation. And the results basically were pretty promising that anxiety went down from the orientation session visit to, to the one hour post meditation, it went down significantly. And then I thought it was promising that one week later, it actually went down a little further. So it continued to go down their anxiety scores. To be honest, I wish we would attract exactly what people did on that week in between. Some of them reported <laughs> nice. back that, you know, we tried some meditation on our own additional times, that kind of thing. Um, but anyway, just from us having the one hour intervention, it did have a positive influence on their anxiety.
1: They had one session, and as you just said, some of them continued to try doing it, which almost makes it seem like you try something once, you like it, you're going to try it again.
2: I can mention that I was one of the participants. So to (laughs) me, I had very minimal experience, actually, with meditation before this. I fell asleep, I think, a couple times for about a minute or two each time during the meditation session. Very relaxed. I think I only meditated a few additional times during that following week. It gives you the feeling that you have another tool in your toolbox, to uh, handle the stressors, you know. So if you're getting daily stressors or anxiety over different things, it kind of gives you this other. I like aerobic exercise as one of the ways to reduce stress or anxiety. And now I kind of had something additional that I could that I could use.
1: So we saw better cardiovascular results across the board. Then,
2: yes, yeah, immediately after the meditation, heart rate was decreased. There was a tendency for aortic pulse pressure, which is the difference between your systolic and diastolic blood pressures at the level of the heart. So in other words, the pressure in your arteries or in your aorta, more specifically, when the heart's beating or contracting and ejecting blood versus when it's relaxing in between beats or refilling with blood. So that tended to be down. So there's something we called aortic pulsatile load, which was reduced, which is just a combination of heart rate times aortic pulse pressure. The idea with this is that if we have less frequent heart beats, and or less of a change in pressure during each beat, that that could be less stress to organs, important organs like the kidneys, the brain, things like that. So less pulsatile stress or less pulsatile load to those organs. That was also reduced at zero minutes or right after the meditation, and also 60 minutes after the
1: meditation. Do you think that this single session of mindfulness, while being beneficial for cardiovascular health, can be a really nice spark to get people to become more involved in mindfulness down the road?
2: Yeah, certainly. I think it, it it's kind of opens your eyes to another, what I would say, a non-pharmacological way to improve your health or a lifestyle intervention type of method to improve your own health.
1: Well, that's it for this week's Sascast. I hope it will inspire you to adopt mindfulness as part of a healthy lifestyle. For Curious Cast, this is the Super Awesome Science Show. We want to thank everyone who has been listening. Your support is overwhelming. We want to show that gratitude by taking your questions and answering them on the show as new episodes. Send me a tweet at JATetro or an email at thegermguy@gmail.com. at and If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us as it helps us to spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to all of our guests. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Kelsey Campbell is our on-site audio producer and editing whiz. of Velasquez is our story producer and sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. Have a great week and as always make sure to show him some sass.